Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Great to, great to see everyone this morning. My name is Corey. I am the senior pastor here at Wade Park Church. And uh, we, over the last, uh, what, seven weeks or so, have been working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And one of the things that I recognize is that when we study scripture, oftentimes we tend to try to go down to all of the little details uh, in, in a scripture. And so we parse out all the words. And in fact, I've heard pastors uh, sort of be really proud of the fact that they can like preach an entire series on two words from one verse in the book of Obadiah. And, uh, and, uh, and they seem to be really proud of that, like their skill at being able to do that. But I actually, I don't do that very often. In fact, I tend to take broader swaths of scripture. And the reason is, is because uh, I, do, I think if we try to dig down that deeply, if we try to uh, pull out such minute little things in Scripture, we tend to lose the forest for the trees. Uh, in other words, I think sometimes we can actually distort the message of what the author was trying to say through a book or a letter uh, if we do that. And, uh, and so I, what I want to do today is, is I want to sort of boil down the message of the book of 1 Peter to just a sentence, actually, and we're going to unpack that sentence a little bit. And the reason I'm doing this is because I actually believe that God brought our attention to the book of 1 Peter over the last few months, both in the men's Bible study that we did this last summer, uh, but also during this focus season where we've studied the book together. And, uh, and the reason I believe this is that I believe that the book of 1 Peter is actually the go-to letter in the entire scriptures when we want to figure out what kind of relationship the church has with the world. Not that other books don't talk about it, but I think 1 Peter is especially about that. And so what I want to do is, after, since we've studied all the details of 1 Peter, I want to take a step back and just give kind of a summary because what we want is, is not, just to, not just to learn the content of 1 Peter, not just to learn the details of 1 Peter, but to internalize it, to move it from our head to our heart and allow it to shape how we see the world. You see, we live in a, in a changing world. Maybe you guys have noticed that. And of course, it's always been the case. But it seems like it's really been the case over the last probably 18 months to two years that that pace has accelerated. In fact, over the probably 25 years of my ministry, I have never seen such an uncertain time uh, that we're living in than what we're living in right now, both for, or all, for society and for Christians and the church. Now, maybe when all of this is said and done, when all everything shakes out, we'll just go back to normal and things will be like they were, but I actually kind of doubt that. Uh, of course, we've all heard about the political polarization and racial unrest and COVID, and we've heard about all of these things ad nauseum over the last, uh, over the last few months. But actually, the, the, the issues are even bigger than that. I mean, think about the fact that tons of people in our society have quit their jobs. 
And it's going to have a lasting impact on our economy. And I don't know what that impact is going to be, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that. In fact, businesses are having such a hard time finding people right now that they are paying out enormous signing bonuses for entry-level jobs. I mean, think about that for a minute. And it's also impacting church attendance, church practice, how people view their faith. Uh, and all of that. Now, who knows? You know, this is some kind of a transition time, and we don't know how things are going to settle in. And from a worldly point of view, everything just seems uncertain right now. Okay? That's the bad news. Anybody feel anxious about like, how things are going to shake out? Okay? That's the bad news. Okay? But there is some good news here. Do you want to hear some good news? All right. Good. I'm glad you're enthusiastic about that. All right. Here's the good news is we don't look at things from a worldly point of view. I'm Right? We don't look at things from a worldly point of view. We serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look up Hebrews 13.8 sometime. Or, or go to James. He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And this is what he says about him. Who does not change with shift, uh, like shifting shadows. Okay, So, no matter what is happening in our world, no matter how much uncertainty there is in the economy, in healthcare, in politics, in society, we have a God that we can trust our lives to. And so we don't have to be afraid. Think about that for a minute. And at the heart of Peter's letter, in the middle of all of this uncertainty and strife, we have the ability to be able to live at peace because we have a God who never changes. Now, at the beginning of the series, we said that the point of studying Scripture is not just to learn the content, but it, the goal is to allow the message of 1 Peter to work its way deep down into our hearts. And I think the best way to do that is to just sort of give a summary of what Peter is talking about in the letter. And so I've reflected on this a little bit, and I've boiled down the message of 1 Peter to just one sentence that we're going to unpack today. And hopefully we can get this as individual Christians, but also as the church. And here's the sentence that I came up with. Okay? The church is, we are the family of God who are called to give ourselves in Jesus' name for the sake of the world. Okay? If you understand that sentence, then you understand the book of 1 Peter. All right, now, before we get into the specifics of everything here, there's something that we need to understand. And this is something that Peter does that is absolutely brilliant uh, in this letter. Because his primary aim with his readers is to build their identity as the people of God. Because he knows something that we oftentimes lose sight of, and it's this, is that our identity impacts our behavior more than any other factor in life. Let me say that again. Our identity impacts our behavior more than any other single factor in life. All right, let me give you an example. Probably when you were in high school or middle school, there were various groups in your, in your school, right? Do you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about here? Let me give you some examples. In my high school, we had the jocks, of course the athletes, right? We had the preps. Uh, in, the, in the 80s, it was uh, people who wore pink shirts, and I don't know if pink and blue counts as that. I was not a prep. I was probably more of a jock, I guess. Uh, we had the dirt balls, and that's actually what we called them. Uh, they were the ones who wore leather jackets and went across the street at lunch to smoke cigarettes and all that. That was Brian. Brian's proud. He was a, he was, he was a dirt ball. <laughs> 
Uh, but that's, no, that's literally what we called them, and they embraced that term as well. So anyway, you, you probably, you've probably had some of those in your school too, right? Did you? Come on, I'm, come on, you guys. All right, uh, we had motorheads, you know, guys who like to work on cars and that. We had the band and choir geeks. Uh, we had the brainiacs, you know, the people who were pulling straight A's and, you know, did math problems for fun, things like that. So we had all of those groups. Did you guys have groups like that in your school? Okay. All right. Now I, I'm, tracking with you. I'm tracking with you now, right? Now, most likely you were part of one of those groups growing up. And the thing about these groups is that the kids in each of those groups tended to dress and act and talk alike. They would do the same things on the weekend. They would have common jokes. They would dress the same way. They would go all the same places, have the same language, and all of that. And, and here's the truth of it, is that uh, this is an example of the principle that our identity determines our behavior. Okay? Now, with these groups... With few exceptions, there was very little overlap. Once in a while, you would have uh, a football player who was also in choir or something like that. Uh, but mostly, they wouldn't necessarily intermingle with each other, and they would probably try to avoid looking like one of the other groups. And so, for instance, if you had a, a jock who happened to get straight A's, he wouldn't brag about that. He would be very secretive because he wouldn't want to be associated with the brainiacs, right? Uh, they didn't join a group and act that way, uh, because the group acted a certain way, what they did was they found a group of people who accepted them, and then they started to adapt their behavior to match that of their group. Okay? And that's just a basic human principle. That's what we do. And that principle is why Peter goes to great lengths in this letter to build people's identity as the people of God. And what he's saying is, is that this is your identity, these are your people, now live into that. Live into that together. And so he calls them. He says, the identity that you have is not found in the society around you. The identity that you have is found in the fact that you are the family of God. You are exiles. You are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That's who you are. Now, live into that identity. It's basic human nature to have this internal, subconscious process going on. And we don't think about this, but this is what happens with us. We ask this question constantly. Who am I, and how do people like us behave? Now, of course, for Christians, the answer to that first question is, we are the family of God. And this means uh, a few things, right? Uh, of course, when Peter says uh, that, uh, he, he first of all says in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, in his mercy, he has given us a new birth, right? This has to do with family. Now, in our, in our tradition, we've long talked about the fact that as believers, we need to be born again. And the reason we talk about this is because Jesus says it in John chapter 3. He says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the truth of the matter is, is that God is drawing everyone. He's active and he's at work in your life. Whether you're a believer or not, he's active at work in your life. But we need to recognize that and we need to respond to that. And when we do, we make this decision to follow Jesus. And when we do that, it says that we are born again. And that means a few things. The first thing it means is that the God of the universe is your father. Let that sink in for just a minute. The God of the universe is your father. He knows you. 
In fact, he knows everything about you. He knows the good things. He knows the bad things. He knows the things that you hope that no one else ever finds out about you. He knows all of that already. And yet, he loves you. He's your father. Now, think about that. I mean, I, may, I could I'd give you just a minute just to close your eyes and just to reflect on that, that God knows you personally, numbers the hairs on your head, and he loves you. Okay. Now, that's one thing that it means to be a part of the family of God. The second thing it means is that you have a spiritual family. One thing that is becoming clearer and clearer to me as I get further along in in ministry and I learn more, uh, talk to more Christians, is that we need to recover a thicker ecclesiology, right? That's a good theological term. Uh, Ecclesiology is basically our understanding of the church. We need to have a more robust understanding of what the church is. Now, if you're a Christian, you've probably heard for years that the church is not something that humans invented. It's not just a social club or anything like that. And it's unlike any other human association in the world because it was instituted by God for the growth and encouragement of believers and also to proclaim, to be witnesses to the death, resurrection, and lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? And so when we come to Jesus, we become a part of a new family. It's a, it's a multi-ethnic, transnational family of God called the church. And that includes the people here in this room. Right? This is where we live out what it means to be the family of God, but it expands beyond that as well to all of the other churches in this city, to all of the other churches in this country, to anywhere you go in the world where people are proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I always find it amazing that when I go to other countries, and I've been to a few other countries, it's amazing to me the trust and solidarity that you find with other believers who are from completely different cultures. Okay? They might be total strangers, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a common understanding of the world because we share a common history through Scripture. We come from different cultures, but we share a common understanding of life and truth and goodness and all of that. And so from Mexico to Sierra Leone to Ethiopia to Bosnia to Slovakia to Germany to Brazil to Scotland to Egypt... No, I'm missing a few places here. These Christians in these countries are your brothers and sisters. Even in places where the country is considered to be an enemy of the United States, when you go there and you meet other believers there, you have more in common with those believers as brothers and sisters in Christ than you do with people who live around you right here. Because we are a part of the family of God. Okay, so you have God as your father. You have a spiritual family. The third thing is, is that you are born into a living hope. Okay? Peter says that when we are born again, through Jesus' resurrection, we are born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Right? Now, he talks about inheritance. Who gets an inheritance? Well, family, right? You don't earn an inheritance. You get an inheritance simply by being a part of the family. 
And so when Peter talks about our inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about eternal life, of course. And I think this is one of the most important things that Christians need to understand. Not just in our head, because when we understand this reality, not just up here, but in our hearts, in our guts, deep in our being, it should change everything about how we live. It should change everything. When you're a part of the family of God... Whatever happens during this short 80 years or so that you have in this life, it, com- it pales in comparison to eternity. I mean, think about that. 80 years versus eternity. If we really believe this, then we would live with an abiding sense of peace no matter what's going on around us. If we really believe this, we wouldn't have to desperately grasp for everything that this life has to offer, ease and comfort and and all of that. If we really knew this deep down, we wouldn't worry about what other people think about us. If we really believed it, we could live with a sense of hope that doesn't seem possible to the people around us, a, a peace that surpasses all understanding. If we really believed it, it would free us up to live differently than anyone else. And that brings us to our fourth implication of being born again, is that we are born into a new way of life. Now, it's it's been common with Christians, not all Christians, but certainly some Christians in the past, to believe that because we're bound for eternity, that we shouldn't concern ourselves with what happens in this life. So it doesn't really matter that people go hungry. Uh, It doesn't matter that there's suffering and pain and injustice in the world. As the saying goes, there are some Christians who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. (laughs) But instead, this is how it should work. That abiding faith in our eternal inheritance should free me from worrying, having to worry about my own eternity. Okay? Once, Once I have that, I'm part of the family, I have that inheritance, and it should free me from having to worry about that, and it will allow me to turn my attention from myself onto other people, okay, to move from self-focus to other focus. And so I don't have to worry about whether I'm right with God and do all of this religious stuff so God will accept me. And now I can focus my attention on doing good in the world in being the kind of person that God calls me to be. Seven times in this short letter, in these five chapters of 1 Peter, he encourages believers to do good. And in various times, at various times, it means different things. So, for one thing, it can mean to live lives of personal virtue and holiness. Okay, Peter tells us in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, do not conform to the evil desires that you used to have when you lived in ignorance, right? And of course, this has to do with how we live sexually, both in thoughts and actions. It has to do with our relationship with money. Are we greedy? Are we always worried about money or status or things like that? He talks a lot about living sober lives, about living with self-control and discipline so we can be at our best for others or so that we can have robust prayer lives. So it talks about personal holiness, but it also talks about living in right relationship with other people. Okay? Are we angry or critical or divisive or abusive to the people around us? Or is our life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Okay? It also has to do with the good that we do in the world. Okay? How are we active in caring for the poor and the sick? the marginalized, those who are treated unjustly. 
See, when we have this living hope, it frees us to set aside all of our evil desires and our incessant need for comfort in this life and instead focus on doing good. The family of God, that is who we are. And this is how people like us live. So, I'm going to take some time, not right now, but later on, to reflect on this question. Who do you consider to be your people? Who do you most identify with? And how do people like us live? This leads us to our second part. Okay? We are the family of God who are called. Okay? It's easy to miss this word, calling. Okay? But it's actually a very important word. You know, One of the most amazing things about the Bible is that it shows us that human beings are created for a purpose. Okay? To reflect the image of God by using our intellectual and creative abilities to use our power and energy to bring about the flourishing of the world. That's our purpose in life. Now, we know that because the Bible has revealed it to us, but you know what? I don't think we actually even need the Bible to know this. There is something in each one of us inherent that inherently believes that we are called for a certain purpose, that we have meaning in life. And I think this is something that a materialist worldview can't account for. So, for instance... Uh, If human beings are only the process of a long chain of evolution, if you can reduce all of human behavior down to chemical processes, then this longing for meaning and purpose is really just an illusion. There's no reason to believe that it's it's real. It might be uh, advantageous for survival, but there's not really any real meaning to it. If God didn't create human beings then it's hard to say why a human being would be any more valuable than a dog or a tree or even a rock. Ah, but see, we know deep down that we are made for something more than just existence. Years ago, the late Alabama football coach, Bear Bryant, uh, he coached uh, until he was like 69, which at the time, that was, that was pretty old. <laughs> and, uh, and so someone asked him, are you ever going to retire? Or why don't you retire? He says, if I ever quit coaching football, I would die in a week. Well, he retired and died four weeks later. Lost his sense of purpose. Okay? We know that we're here for something more. And so when you become a believer, not only do you take on a new family, but you also take on that calling to bear witness to Jesus Christ through word and deed. And that's what Peter means when he says about the church. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And listen to what he says here. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And that means that as believers that we live for something greater than ourselves. And when we do that, we get the satisfaction of knowing that we are being eternal difference in the lives of the people that we meet every day. Do you ever think about the fact that you can make an eternal difference in the lives of the people around you? And so maybe a good question for reflection would be this. When someone looks at your calendar, at your bank account, at what gets you excited or what you fear, what would they say is your purpose? Would they say that you are living for an eternal purpose? All right, let's talk a little bit more about that calling because this is an important thing for Peter. And uh, 
the calling that we have as a family is actually just an extension of the ministry of Jesus. And you probably noticed, if you tracked with us through the book of 1 Peter, that 1 Peter talks a lot about suffering. And he talks about the suffering of Jesus as well. And the reason that he did this is because he was writing to people who were suffering for their faith. They were being persecuted for being Christians. And yet, Peter didn't say, do whatever you can to avoid suffering. Do whatever you can to make it stop. Get away from people who are persecuting you so, just so you can live at peace. He never said that. Now, what did Peter say? No, he said, stay in it. Be eager to do good. Bless those who curse you. In fact, he says, revere Christ as Lord. In other words, look to Christ as the one who has the authority to command your life. And then he says this. He says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Okay, all of this in the middle of suffering. Why do you have so much hope in the middle of suffering? Be ready to answer that question. But even more than that, in chapter 3, he talks about Jesus' mission and talks about the fact that he suffered and he died for that mission. And then he writes this in, in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with that same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but for the will of God. I was once in a small group at a, at a previous church, and I don't even remember what the conversation was about. It was about service and maybe persecution or something like that. And I remember someone in my group saying this. He said, yes, Jesus calls us to follow him, but he doesn't call us to be doormats. And when I was thinking about that, my initial response, I don't think I said it out loud, but my initial response was, have you ever read the Gospels? Like, Jesus allowed people to kill him. I, you know, maybe that's what it means to, to be a doormat. I don't know. But he did it willingly. Now, I often, I often reflect on that statement because I go back and forth on it. And, and, you know, for a lot of it is, is I'm like, well, it kind of depends on what you mean by that, I suppose. Does God call Christians to get stepped on by other people? Well, Peter does talk a lot about suffering in the book. And it often sounds like that's exactly what he's getting at. And so I think it would be good for us to get a big picture view of what Peter views as suffering or what he's talking about when he talks about suffering. Because I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding around this as well. Okay, so let me, let me talk a little bit about how Peter thinks about suffering. Okay? The first thing is this, is that when he talks about suffering, he's not talking about suffering in general. Okay? For instance, I've started lifting weights and my arms hurt. I am, I am suffering. I will tell you, a few days ago, I was really suffering because I overdid it. But I don't think that's what Peter is talking about when he talks about suffering. I don't, I don't think I was suffering for Jesus. I think I was suffering for my own stupidity, right? Um, and so we have to sort of nuance what he says about suffering. He's talking about suffering for our faith. And this is an important thing. And this is something that actually is, is really a, a sensitive issue for me. Okay? Because, for instance... I have seen women who were counseled by a pastor to stay in an abusive relationship because they were suffering for Jesus. Okay. 
And I think this is wrong-headed, I do. And I, think, and I, and I believe that you know, sometimes marriage can be hard, and, and I think there are a lot of inconveniences. There is some suffering that we put up with in marriage, that we stay in marriages that are hard, because it is a discipleship opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to learn and grow. It can be hard in regular circumstances. Okay? But a spouse that is abusive is being unfaithful to their wedding vows. And unfaithful to the calling for marriage that God has, has given us, God's intent for marriage. And so staying in that situation, I think, only enables harmful behavior. And I don't think it's necessarily what God intends. Okay? But when Peter talks about suffering, he's talking specifically about suffering for being a Christian. Now, most of us right now don't. I mean, if we're honest about it, we really don't suffer for being a Christian, but... If we do, Peter says, don't back down. Don't be surprised by it. Okay, He says, stay the course knowing that we are in good company if we suffer for Christ because Christ himself suffered. Well, another thing that we should notice when Peter talks about suffering and, is that he doesn't tell believers that we should try to seek it out or that we should try to suffer. He's simply acknowledging the fact that believers in Asia Minor at the time were suffering, and he wants to give them instructions about what to do with it. There wasn't a whole lot they could do about their situation. Okay, so how do you handle this as believers? And in fact, we've seen throughout church history, we've seen Christians who have actually tried to suffer for their faith. In fact, there was a time when people desired to be martyred for their faith. But I don't see that that's something that Jesus calls us to. I don't necessarily see that in Scripture, that we should try to suffer for our faith. And in fact, I think this brings us to our third point about suffering, is that actually our focus should not be on suffering. It should be on doing the will of God. And understand that when we do the will of God, we might suffer for it. We might face consequences for it. Live the way God calls us to live as the family of God, and if we suffer for it, we can know that we're in good company, right? You see, we shouldn't only commit to following Jesus when it's convenient or when it's comfortable for us. That's why Jesus, for instance, says in Matthew chapter 16, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, I know that passages like this conjure up images of uh, missionaries going to Africa and risking their lives, or activists risking their lives to save refugees, or something like that. And we certainly need to be willing to do things like that if the situation arises, if we feel called to do something like that. But the truth of the matter is, is I can almost guarantee you that you already have opportunities to lay down your rights every day. You already have opportunities to lay down your rights in, at home, at work, at school, at the park, in the store, wherever you are, you have an opportunity to lay down your rights for the sake of Christ. And you should be willing to do that. Because according to Jesus, the clearest mark of a follower of Jesus is self-sacrificial love for other people. And if we have our eyes on Jesus 
and we understand our calling, then we will be willing to lay down our comfort, to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. Well, finally, Peter talks about our posture or our attitude toward the world, okay? that we should live for the benefit of the world. We want people to be able to see Jesus through us. And Peter draws on the Old Testament image that we are a holy priesthood. Okay, well, what, does, what do priests do? If we are a holy priesthood, what do priests do? Well, they are mediators between God and humans and between humans and God. Okay, and so as God's family, think about this. As God's family, as the church, as the people of God, we represent God to the world. And in fact, for, for many people who aren't necessarily sensitive to the spiritual workings of God in the world, when they look at us and we claim to be followers of Jesus, we represent Jesus to them. And so how is it that we live in the world? Okay, So that's representing God to people. But it also goes the other way as well. We should also be interceding to God on behalf of the world. In, uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Who are we declaring those praises to? We're declaring them to the world. Okay? We want the world to see Jesus through us and give glory to God. And again, he writes in, in chapter 3, he says, We need to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have within us, and to do so with gentleness and respect. And when we do that, he says, it's going to cause people to reevaluate their own life, right? When they see the way we live, people are going to look and go, wow, I'm a mess. <laughs> but that's what he says. He says that we should return curses with blessings, that we should bless those who curse us. And in that way, we can win over people. And all of that tells us that whatever we do as believers, we should do so out of love and care for the world, not in some kind of adversarial posture toward them. Actually, if, if our ministry is an extension of Jesus' ministry, well, let's just look at what motivated Jesus to do what he did. So, for instance, look at John 3.16, one of the most uh, the famous verses in all of Scripture. This is what he says, or what it says. God so loved the world, you get that? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, should have an inheritance that shall never perish, spoil, or fade. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We are a community of people. We are a family who is formed around that mission. And that doesn't mean that we're all going to move to Africa or South America or something like that. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be in professional ministry here. Okay, but it does mean that you're always aware of your identity and your calling. It means living lives of consistent love and virtue. It means doing, all, uh, doing good to all the people around us. And more than anything else, because of an undying love for our Heavenly Father that we want more than anything else for people to come to know Him. So, according to 1 Peter, who are we? Well, we are the family of God, 
called to give ourselves in Jesus' name for the sake of the world. May that be true of us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book that we have walked through. And my prayer for all of those who have gone through it is that it would be more than just content that we've learned, more than just information in our heads, but that it would soak into our very souls. That we wouldn't have to continually remind ourselves of who we are, that we wouldn't have to continually remind ourselves of how we ought to be living, but that because of our love for you, because we have internalized this so much, that it just flows out of who we are that we do good to all of those around us, that we are able to stand strong in the middle of persecution and suffering, that we return blessings for curses, that we do good to everyone around us and that we bear witness to the goodness of God and of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that more and more you would be forming us into that identity as individuals, As a church family, God, I I pray that you would uh, be shaping us into what you've called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.